night is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Let's give attention to it now. Ephesians 1, verse 11. In Him, we have an, obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. The grass withers, the flower fades. Amen. Please be seated. Well, uh, over the past uh, few months, we have worked our way through uh, the Westminster Confession, chapter 1 of Scripture, and we worked through the second chapter of God, and we have perfectly mastered the nature of God and the Holy Trinity, and I know that you know that uh, by heart now. But I do hope that over the past couple of months, you've picked up some things, maybe grown, gleaned some things from the Confession, grown in your understanding. And uh, so tonight, we're moving into the third chapter, which deals with the decree of God. Now, what is a decree? So you think of decrees, uh, perhaps, as uh, a king, something a king will hand down. He will decree something for his kingdom. And in his decree, he is ordaining something that every man has to obey. This is what must be done. It is a declaration. And so this is a similar way that we think of God's decrees. He has declared what is to come to pass. And so that's what we're going to think about as we move into the third chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith. But before we continue, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer and ask for His aid. Our Father, we come before You acknowledging that Your Word is a gift to every man. Now we sit in creation, which is uh, an inspired book, as it were. It proclaims to us day by day, night by night, that You exist, You are powerful, You are wise. And You've also given us Your Word, O Lord, another book, which contains your revelation of salvation to mankind. And so, Father, we also come before you confessing that by nature we are, um, we are people whose understanding is confused. We, by nature, have a darkened mind. And so we need uh, the work of your Holy Spirit so that we will benefit from reading your word. And so we ask that you would cause your spirit to enlighten our eyes, our minds tonight, so that our hearts um, would be humble and obedient to uh, what we learn here. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I was listening to a sermon uh, of a friend of mine recently um, on, on the third chapter of the Westminster Confession, and he, he stated in, at the beginning of his sermon, he says, until a person learns that God is sovereign, he doesn't really know God at all. And I thought, what, a, what an easy, simple way to put that. Until a person learns that God is sovereign, he doesn't really know God at all. And you probably know. You, you, you probably have conversations with Christian friends who, who maybe they don't come from a Reformed background, and you say, is God a sovereign God? And they will say, yes, I affirm that God is a sovereign God. Well, do you, do you affirm that He has decreed whatever comes to pass And at that point, a lot of our friends would back up and say, well, I think that God decrees most of the things that come to pass, but but maybe not all things that come to pass. 
Well, the Westminster Confession, as we roll into the third chapter, it begins by reminding us that God has decreed whatsoever comes to pass. Whatsoever comes to pass. And you think, well, where, where would you get a statement like that? Well, Ephesians 1.11. Did you notice what it said? Look again at Ephesians 1.11. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him. Now notice what it says. Who works what? Most things according... Is that right? No. All things. All things according to the counsel of His will. So there you have it in black and white. A statement from Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now that's pretty simple, isn't it? But it's important. Sovereignty is not something that we... It's not just our badge of, hey, I'm reformed. I believe in the sovereignty of God better than anybody else. It's also so exceedingly important for holiness. Let me just give you a couple of ideas. The sovereignty of God does these things. It tempers our grieving, doesn't it? When I grieve a loss, it sort of it puts a stopper on that to a degree because I know that even my loss is according to the counsel of God's will. So it tempers our grieving. It, think about this now, it curtails our complaining. Man, it's hot. <laughs> well, why is it so hot? Well, because God decreed it. You see, so it curtails our complaining and it moves us into contentment. This is why Paul could say what? In whatever situation I am, I've learned to be content. It calms our fearing. You think of Jesus resting in the boat. Jesus, why can you, how can you sleep when the waves are crashing over the gunnels of our boat? Well, because he trusted in the sovereignty of his Father. Very simple. His faith was unpolluted. It relieves our anxiety and worry. Oh, you little faiths. You remember Jesus said in Matthew 6? Trust in the Lord. He provides for the lilies of the valley. He will provide for you. And it comforts our affliction. It comforts our affliction. It's so important to remember. Um, and, and I come back to this. This is a Thomas Watson's imagery, the Puritan. And he, he, he gave the image of our afflictions being like the ocean. There is a shore. And God has determined the limit of the ocean. And He has determined the limit of every one of your afflictions. They can only come so far and no more. It tempers our grieving. It curtails our complaining. It calms our fearing, relieves our anxiety and worry, comforts our affliction, and, and we could go on and on and on. But this is, these are the practical aspects of coming to understand uh, the sovereignty of God. Here's another one. It enables us to be faithful in evangelism, doesn't it? Because I know that I'm not out on the street trying to manipulate men into believing in Christ. It strengthens our worship. We could continue, but I'll, those are some. In short, here, here's what I'm trying to encourage you to do. 
You have to grasp the sovereignty of God with your real hands, with your mind. It is so important for you to wrap yourself around this as far as you are able for all of these reasons. And so tonight, as we work our way briefly through the Westminster Confession, chapter 3, paragraph 1, we'll just notice that God is an absolute sovereign. He is an absolute sovereign. He doesn't share power with anybody. Anybody. He's an absolute sovereign. And then I'm going to borrow from some language of of one commentator on the confession because he says in this paragraph, there are three fences that you and I have to observe with reference to the sovereignty of God. Three boundary markers where the scriptures say, don't go there. One, sovereignty in its relation to sin. Sovereignty in its relation to our choices. And then sovereignty and its relationship to our seasons. And and I'll work those out for you a little bit as we get there. Obviously, we're not going to cover them as expansively as we, as we could, but we'll, we will touch on them. So let's notice, first of all, that God is an absolute sovereign. As we go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, uh, we notice that, 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 um, that Paul, talking about our great salvation, how God has chosen us in Him, he says that he has purposed that this is, he's worked this out according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. And so you get this picture of God working things out. He is seated on his throne and he's not consulting anybody. Every single thing works out according to the, to the plan of his sovereign will. All things work according to the counsel of his own will. And this is so important in moments like election night. How many of you, I think we talked about this before, how many of you stay up on election night watching the results um, uh, come in? What a torturous thing to do, isn't it, sometimes? (laughs) Um, But at the end of the night, how do I not go to bed in in fear and trepidation of what I'm going to wake up to in the morning? Because in the morning, in a real sense, you're going to wake up to the same thing that you've always woken up to, which is a God who sovereignly prevails over all things. Every single thing. Turn over with me to Psalm 115. As I, um, I, I, um, I wasn't raised in a background that emphasized the sovereignty of God or even had a, frankly, had a very good picture of God's sovereignty. And I remember reading passages like Psalm 115 in my own personal Bible study and thinking, wow, what a, what a picture of who the Lord is. So let's read Psalm 115, verse 1, verse 3, uh, through verse 3. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love, and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. You see that? He sits in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Whatsoever God pleases, that is what he does. Whatsoever he pleases, that is what comes to pass. Now, this is also not just a biblical doctrine, it's also a logical doctrine. If God is not in charge of all things, even the particles in the atmosphere, then He is not God. Something or someone else is. To be God, by the very definition, He must be an absolute sovereign. 
This was his comfort to Abraham. Do you remember? You think about Abraham. He's 99 years old. He is waiting on the promise of God to be fulfilled, this child to be born to him. And God came to him in Genesis 17, and he said to him, Abraham, I am God Almighty. We confessed that just a minute ago in the Nicene Creed, and we confess it in uh, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I love this. The Spanish word for that is todo poderoso. It just rolls off the tongue. All-powerful. He can do whatsoever He wills. This is an aspect of the faithful Christian belief. God is all-powerful. And so when we confess, I believe in God Almighty, what we mean is I believe in the God who does whatsoever He wills. This is the beauty of Psalm 2 that we sung this morning, isn't it? No one can knock him off the throne. It's not a competition. You might have played King of the Hill when you were a kid. Then somebody gets up on the hill and you get knocked off and you fight back and you're knocked off and you fight back. Christ is seated on the hill of Zion and no one will ever knock him off. The confession goes on, not just to discuss the what of God's decree, what is it that he he does whatever he wills, but it also talks about the when and the how of God's decree. It goes on and it says, in, in terms of the when, when did God decree whatsoever comes to pass? Was it 1965? No. From all eternity. What does that mean? Before the world was ever created, before you were a twinkling in the eye, God decreed whatsoever would come to pass. Turn over with me to Titus chapter 1. One of the pastoral epistles here, and we're just looking at the, the greeting from the Apostle Paul to Titus. Paul, Titus 1 verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Now notice that what Paul's doing here is he's working through his own calling and office. How do I carry this out? What's the purpose of my calling? The faith of the elect. How do I carry this out? Verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages to begin. Began. Now, literally, that word is before eternal times. Before eternal times, or before times eternal. God promised eternal life. Paul said a, a similar thing in 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you turn back just a couple of pages there, 2 Timothy 1. <clears throat> and verse... We could read verses 8 and 9. Let's pick up up in verse 9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of, here it is, His own purpose. That's His decree. His own purpose and grace. Now, when did He give that to us? Which He gave us in Christ Jesus, same word, before eternal times. Before the world began, some of your translations May say. So here we have just an affirmation that God has decreed all things, especially as they relate to your salvation, before the world began. 
In other words, he's not a God who is simply responding to things as they come about. He didn't say, oh, there's sin. What should I do about it? Before the world began, before Adam had sinned, he had decreed the salvation of his elect in Christ. For the glory of Christ. So, when did God make his decree? From all eternity. And this is true for everything that comes to pass. And you think about how we could sort of work back logically from here. If God has decreed your salvation, then certainly he must also have decreed your birth, for instance. When you were to be born, to whom you were to be born, how the gospel would come to you, who would pray for you. You see, all of these things God had to decree in order to decree the whole big picture, your salvation in Christ Jesus. And he did that before the world began. The confession goes on and it talks about how God decreed. What is the decree? When did he decree it? And how did he decree it? And let's just listen to a few of these details. One, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will. Two, freely. And three, unchangeably. Turn over with me to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 13 to 14. This is another one of those passages that, that often come up in my own, own prayer. Um, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 13 and 14. Isaiah 40, of course, is, is the turning point chapter, isn't it, in, in Isaiah's prophecy, because it turns us from the condemnation of the nations, and 40 to 66 are the declaration of a future hope for, for the people of God. And so let's read what it says in verses 13 and 14. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? And notice here what it says. Or what man shows him his counsel? Can you imagine our sovereign God consulting with men? What, what do you men think that I should do in this particular situation? This is what Isaiah is saying. He doesn't consult with men. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Verse 14, whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? This is uh, where we get this idea. How did God decree? How did he do it? By the counsel of his own will. He didn't require the counsel of men. Now, you and I know that uh, if there's a wise king, one of the things that he's going to do is surround himself with wise men. Uh, this is what's so ignorant when we get to the story of Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Rehoboam came to power and Solomon's counselors were there with him who had experienced the wisdom of Solomon. And do you know what Rehoboam chose to do? He said, I think I'll listen to my high school buddies instead of the counselors to, to my father. That did not come to a good end. God doesn't require counselors. He has infinite wisdom in and of himself. And no one gives him counsel. So that Paul, when he comes to the end of Romans, that first section in Romans 11.33, do you know what he says? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. You and I, if we try and try and try, will never get to the bottom of the mind of God. 
certainly we can't counsel him. He did so freely. In Hebrews 6, verse 17, we read, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, listen, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. God's purpose is free and God's purpose is unchangeable. It cannot be influenced. When he determined who he would save, you see, he did not look down the corridors of time and see who would exercise faith and make them his elect. You see, this is men influencing God. No, that's not how it works. God decreed. He looked over fallen man and he chose who he would save. He did so freely. You think of an unjust judge, and and what makes him unjust? Well, a wealthy man comes along, and he gives the judge money. He bribes him, and he influences his decision. God is not influenceable. His decision is determined. It is set. It is unchangeable. And and this is where things begin to get um, deep. Aren't they? We are we are walking in in deep waters when we start to think about um, the sovereignty of God. Especially as we continue on, we think about the relationship between sovereignty of, and sin, sovereignty and human choices, and sovereignty and seasons. And I'm I'm borrowing um, from Chad Van Dixorn his commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you don't have it, it's a wonderful one. But he calls these three fences. Three fences. And so in our thinking about sovereignty, we must be careful to observe these stopping points. And here they are. One, God is not the author of sin. Two, God's sovereignty does no violence to free will. And third, God does not subvert second causes. And we're going to walk through those just briefly. First of all, a second here, our second point then is sovereignty and our sin. This is our first fence. So if we think this through, if you're talking with your friends and you say, well, Ephesians 1.11 says that God causes all things that he has ordained whatsoever comes to pass, then some of our friends would respond and say, well, this means that God is the author of sin. The confession goes on and it says, Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin. Now, why could we get that? Why would we say that God is not the author of sin? And you can say, well, this flows logically from the fact that He is a holy God. He cannot even look upon sin. And therefore, He can't cause sin to come about. But even... Just as trustworthy as that, we would look at his word. Turn over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 is so important for us in our doctrine of understanding who God is. He's, he is unchanging. He's not a shifting shadow. But also when it comes to God's relationship to sin and temptation, James 1 is very important. Notice what the scripture says in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and what? He himself tempts 
no one. And then skip over to verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Now notice what it says. With whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God doesn't change. He is the Father of lights. And we should never say it is an evil thing to say. I am tempted by God. It is God's will for me to take this sinful path. That is false. God cannot be tempted with evil. He doesn't desire it. And He Himself tempts no one. So then where does temptation come from? Within the heart of man. Within the heart of man. And 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says, This is the message that we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness. Now, John could stop there and say there is no darkness, but he wanted to confirm this when he says at all. There is no darkness in Him at all. So God's relationship to sin is He is not the author of it. He ordains it, but He does not cause it. This is our first fence. What is God the author of? Well, He's the author of life. According to Hebrews 2.10, He is the author of salvation. According to Hebrews 12.2, He is the author of our faith. But He is not the author of sin. He is a holy God. Um, one of the interesting things here is that in the Westminster Assembly, which actually would have begun yesterday in the 1600s, July the 1st, the Westminster Assembly produced a special paper on this topic. There was a man by the name of John Archer who printed a book titled Comfort for Believers About Their Sins and Troubles. And one of the things that he printed in that book, he said that God has more to do with sin than man. That he, his hand, is in sin. And so the Westminster Divines, they produced a special paper condemning this book and actually ordering, if you think that our modern book bans are, <clears throat> are wrong, they ordered that John Archer's book should be burned by the hangman because it was so pernicious and evil and slanderous of true theology. God is not the author of sin. But what we learn is that sinful actions serve God's purposes. Turn over to John 19, verse 11. This is... Um, where Jesus is on trial by Pilate. And Jesus, speaking to Pilate, said to him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. You would have no authority over me at all, Pilate, if it had not been given to you from above. So even though God is not authoring Pilate's sin, He does not put it into their hearts to commit this sin. What Jesus showed is that in committing it, they are serving the plan of God. 
The second fence is sovereignty and our choices. Well, what about free will? This is always the question, isn't it? Doesn't God has given us free will. He allows us to make free choices. And the authors of the Westminster Confession would say, yes, God does allow men to make free choices. And it is a real freedom. It is a real freedom. They go on. Not only does God not the, he is not the author of sin, but the confession goes on, neither is violence offered to the will of the creatures. And we affirm then that man, yes, man does have a free will. He makes his own choices. God not, he is not the cause of sin, and he doesn't cause men to do what they do. He is not, we are not robots, in other words. Just as God does not cause sin, He does not take away your freedom of choice. And so, one of the classic examples of this is Acts chapter 2, verse 23, which you know. Peter there in his Pentecost sermon said, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, it was God's plan for Jesus to be delivered up. This was not against God's plan. It was congruent with it. But who did it? He says, you crucified, you killed him, you committed the evil. So they were not, even though this was a part of God's plan, God was not causing these men to do it. Now he was upholding them every moment by the word of his power. His providence was was working in and through that moment. He was giving these men life, but it was their desire that gave fruit to this sin to kill Christ. Whose plan was it for Jesus to die? Well, it was God's plan. But who carried it out? Lawless men about whom Peter said, you killed him. And so your actions are your actions. There's never a moment at which a man might say, well, I wouldn't have done this if it hadn't been God causing me to do it. Didn't he decree me to do it? Yes, he did but He didn't cause you. He gives you the option to choose, and you choose according to your own nature. Proverbs 16, verse 33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is what? From the Lord. Who casts the lot? The man does. Who forces the die? The man does. Whose lap does it fall into? It falls into the man's lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. God gives the answer. He directs even the destination of the die. And this is so important. Why why is this doctrine so important? Because every man is responsible for his own deeds. If we were robots, if God caused us to sin, if God caused us to make our decision and took away our freedom of choice, He would not be just to punish men in hell or to hate sinful man, as he does, Psalm 5, 5, Psalm 11, 5. Jesus said to the people, that he said in Matthew 17, 12, Jesus said to the peop- that what the people did to, to John the Baptist was whatever they pleased. So although God predestined every aspect of his plan, the sinful treatment of John the Baptist was the pleasure of the people. And this is also important in our sanctification, isn't it? It is up to you and me 
to apply the means of grace to our lives. This is why the writer to the Hebrews, remember, he said, by now you should all be teachers. If you were being faithful in studying the Word, in learning the Word, you wouldn't be stuck on milk, you'd be eating meat. We aren't sanctified by letting go and letting God. We are sanctified by applying the means of grace faithfully. Let's look at the third fence then. Sovereignty and our seasons. The, the way that the confession puts this is, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. You, you might also hear a man complaining and saying, well, if God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, I'm not going to the hospital. If it's His will for me to live, then I'll just lay here on my couch with this bullet wound and I'll live. If it isn't His will to li- for me to live, then I'm going to die wherever I go. And, and He would say to you, isn't that true? And you would say, well, yes, that's true. But that doesn't mean you don't apply yourself to the, to the things that He's given to you. You don't put the Lord to the test. If it's His will to li- for you to live, when you jump off the Empire State Building, you will live. But we aren't to put the Lord to the test. And so we just look at this very quickly, this third, this third fence. Since God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, should you go to the doctor? Should you take an aspirin? Should you bother going to work? If it's my boss's will for me to have a job and to get paid, I'm going to get paid. You can see how men might abuse this. The confession says it it doesn't take away the liberty or the contingency of these second causes. It establishes them. I take an aspirin because in His sovereignty, God has given us this medication, and in His sovereignty, it, it will work in my body. God has decreed. Think about our salvation. God has decreed whom He would save. And we will learn as we go on in this chapter that God predestined a definite number of men to salvation. Should we pray for people? Should we preach the gospel? You know, our primitive Baptist friends say that don't preach the gospel to people. God is going to save whomever He wills. But this is just another form of disobedience because God has also predestined the means of salvation. Your father or your mother who prayed for you, God determined that that would be a means by which you are saved. That Sunday school teacher, that preacher who proclaimed to you the gospel, or that parent who proclaimed the gospel to you, God predestined that means by which you would be saved. Think about this. He commands us to pray that His name would be regarded as holy. He wants, He invites you to come in and in a a sense participate in the carrying out of His sovereign decree so that when you see, wow, our community is honoring the name of God, you can say, we prayed for that. Thank you, Lord. But He ordained it from the foundation of the earth. He has invited you to pray that His kingdom would come. God has decreed the end, but He's also decreed the means to that end. If it's His will to take away your sickness, He can do it above those causes, without them, by the command of His Word. But more often than not, He is determined to do it through those secondary causes. But in the end, 
to whom do we give praise? You see, this is why it's so important for us to understand that these secondary causes are established by sovereignty. Because at the end of the day, if I'm healed, I give thanks to God, whether it's by means or without those means. He determines whether my medication will be successful or not. He determines if it should heal or fail to heal. And so our hope, our trust, our confidence is ultimately and only in the sovereignty of God. So as we delve into the sovereignty of God, you, you know, we plumb the limits of our own wisdom. But does that mean that we don't study it? Certainly not. It is essential to our health, to our comfort, to our spiritual being, to apply ourselves to, this, to the sovereignty of God so that we will praise Him properly. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, we thank You that we come to before You as a sovereign God. Oh, Father, it gives us such great comfort to know that whatsoever comes to pass is of Your hand. And I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters as we go through and consider this chapter of the Confession of Faith, that You would enlarge our understanding of Your sovereignty, that You would assure us maybe of the things that we've already known or present them to us from a new direction so that we will become more assured that we will learn, Father, to be content in Christ, to rest in Your strong hand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.